PTJ podcasts are made possible by the American Physical Therapy Association. This podcast is sponsored by Therapy Source. Therapy Source is a therapy practice management software solution used by the majority of all large physical therapy chains in the U.S. It is a scalable solution for small clinics with integrated electronic medical records, scheduling, registration, clinical documentation, billing, and revenue cycle management. For more information, visit www.sourcemed.net. Welcome to this PTJ podcast. PTJ is the official publication of the American Physical Therapy Association. PTJ disseminates basic and applied science related to physical therapy, contributes evidence to guide clinical decision-making, and publishes scholarly perspectives from around the world. And now, your host, Donovan Stutel. Welcome to PTJ's Audio Abstracts podcast for April 2010. This month's research reports focus on a perturbation-based balance training program for older adults, health-related quality of life and robotic-assisted therapy for hand function, a supervised exercise program for people with bleeding disorders and hemophilic arthritis, intensive physical training after stroke, electromyographic comparison of exercises with dumbbells and elastic tubing, assessment of risk of recurrent falls in elderly people, kinematics of rising from a chair, construct validity of muscle force tests, and cold modalities and nerve conduction. This month's case report focuses on a therapeutic exercise program for patients with hip osteoarthritis. This month's perspective article focuses on management of chronic fatigue syndrome myalgic encephalomyelitis. The April issue features two articles from PTJ's continuing CARE 5 conference series, Qualitative Research Ethics, and Continuing Professional Development and Physical Therapists' Roles in Arthritis Management. First this month, Effect of a Perturbation-Based Balance Training Program on Compensatory Stepping and Grasping Reactions in Older Adults, a Randomized Controlled Trial, by Dr. Avril Mansfield, Amy Peters, Dr. Barbara Liu, and Dr. Brian Mackey. This abstract is presented by Dave Corvoisier. Compensatory Stepping and Grasping Reactions are prevalent responses to sudden loss of balance and play a critical role in preventing falls. The ability to execute these reactions effectively is impaired in older adults. The purpose of this double-blind, randomized, controlled trial was to evaluate a perturbation-based balance training program designed to target specific age-related impairments in compensatory stepping and grasping balance recovery reactions. The study was conducted at research laboratories in a large urban hospital. 30 community-dwelling older adults between the ages of 64 and 80 who had a recent history of falls or self-reported instability participated in the study. The participants were randomly assigned to receive either a six-week perturbation-based balance training program involving a motor platform or a six-week control program involving flexibility and relaxation training. The four features of balance reactions targeted by the perturbation-based program were 1. Multi-step reactions 2. Extra-lateral steps following anteroposterior perturbations 3. Foot collisions following lateral perturbations and 4. Time to complete grasping reactions The reactions were evoked during testing by highly unpredictable surface translation and cable pull perturbations 
both of which differed from the perturbations used during training. Compared with the control program, the perturbation-based training led to greater reductions in frequency of multi-step reactions and foot collisions that were statistically significant for surface translations, but not cable pulls. The perturbation group also showed significantly greater reduction in handrail contact time compared with a control group for cable pulls, and a possible trend in this direction for surface translations. Further work is needed to determine whether a maintenance program is needed to retain the training benefits and to assess whether these benefits reduce fall risk in daily life. Perturbation-based training shows promise as an effective intervention to improve the ability of older adults to prevent themselves from falling when they lose their balance. This article is the subject of an invited commentary by Faye Horak and Lori King. A video clip and two e-tables for this article are available online. Lead author Dr. Avril Mansfield is postdoctoral fellow at the Heart and Stroke Foundation Center for Stroke Recovery at Sunnybrook Health Sciences Center and at the Toronto Rehabilitation Institute, both in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. At the time the study was conducted, she was affiliated with the Institute of Medical Science, University of Toronto, and with the Center for Studies in Aging at Sunnybrook Health Sciences Center. Next, quality of life change associated with robotic-assisted therapy to improve hand motor function in patients with subacute stroke, a randomized clinical trial by Dr. Nancy Kuttner, Rebecca Zhang, Dr. Andrew Butler, Dr. Stephen Wolf, and Dr. Jay Alberts. At six months post-stroke, most patients cannot incorporate their affected hand into daily activities, which in turn is likely to reduce their perceived quality of life. This preliminary study explored change in patient-reported health-related quality of life associated with robotic-assisted therapy combined with reduced therapist-supervised training. The researchers conducted a single-blind, multi-site, randomized clinical trial. Seventeen individuals who were three to nine months post-stroke participated in the study. The study compared 60 hours of therapist-supervised repetitive task practice with a combination of 30 hours of repetitive task practice and 30 hours of robotic-assisted therapy. Participants completed the stroke impact scale three times at baseline, immediately post-intervention, and two months post-intervention. Change in stroke impact scale score domains was assessed in a mixed model analysis. The combined therapy group had a greater increase in rating of mood from pre-intervention to post-intervention, and the repetitive task practice only group had a greater increase in rating of social participation from pre-intervention to follow-up. Both groups had statistically significant improvement in activities of daily living and instrumental activities of daily living scores from pre-intervention to post-intervention. Both groups reported significant improvement in hand function post-intervention and at follow-up, and the magnitude of these changes suggested clinical significance. The combined therapy group had significant improvements in stroke recovery rating post-intervention and at follow-up, which appeared clinically significant. This also was true for stroke recovery rating from pre-intervention to follow-up in the repetitive task practice only group. A limitation of the study was that the outcomes of 30 hours of repetitive task practice in the absence of robotic-assisted therapy remain unknown. 
Robotic-assisted therapy may be an effective alternative or adjunct to the delivery of intensive task practice interventions to enhance hand function recovery in patients with stroke. This article is the subject of an invited commentary by Alma Marians. Lead author Dr. Nancy Kuttner is Professor of Rehabilitation Medicine at the Emory University School of Medicine in Atlanta, Georgia. Next, effects of a six-week individualized supervised exercise program for people with bleeding disorders and hemophilic arthritis by Dr. Ruth Mulvaney, Dr. Audrey Zucker-Levin, Dr. Michael Jang, Catherine Joyce, Janet Tuller, Jonathan Rose, and Dr. Marion Dugdale. People with bleeding disorders may develop severe arthritis due to joint hemorrhages. Exercise is recommended for people with bleeding disorders, but guidelines are vague and few studies document efficacy. In this study, 65% of people with bleeding disorders surveyed reported participating in minimal exercise, and 50% indicated a fear of exercise-induced bleeding, pain, or physical impairment. The purpose of this study was to examine the feasibility, safety, and efficacy of a professionally designed, individualized, supervised exercise program for people with bleeding disorders. A single-group pre-test-post-test clinical design was used. Thirty-three patients, three females and thirty males between the ages of seven and fifty-seven with mild to severe bleeding disorders were enrolled in the study. Twelve patients had coexisting illnesses, including HIV-AIDS, hepatitis, diabetes, fibromyalgia, neurofibromatosis, osteopenia, osteogenesis imperfecta, or cancer. Pre-program and post-program measures included upper and lower extremity strength, joint range of motion, joint and extremity circumference, and distance walked in six minutes. Each patient was prescribed a six-week, twice-weekly, individualized, supervised exercise program. Twenty participants, 61%, completed the program. Pre-program and post-program data were analyzed by paired t-tests for all participants who completed the program. No exercise-induced injuries, pain, edema, or bleeding episodes were reported. Significant improvements occurred in joint motion, strength, and distance walked in six minutes, with no change in joint circumference. The greatest gains were among the individuals with the most severe joint damage and coexisting illness. Limitations of this study included a small sample size with concomitant disease, which is common to the population, and a non-blinded examiner. A professionally designed and supervised individualized exercise program is feasible, safe, and beneficial for people with bleeding disorders, even in the presence of concomitant disease. A longitudinal study with a larger sample size, a blinded examiner, and a control group is needed to confirm the results. A bottom line for this article is available online. Lead author Dr. Ruth Mulvaney is Associate Professor in the Department of Physical Therapy, College of Allied Health Sciences at the University of Tennessee Health Science Center in Memphis, Tennessee.
effect of intensive outpatient physical training on gait performance and cardiovascular health in people with hemiparesis after stroke. By Jürgen Rudd Jürgensen, Daniel Tue Beck Peterson, Peter Zeman, Jana Sarensen, Dr. Lars Anderson, and Dr. Michael Scherenberger. Stroke can result in severe motor deficits, and many people who have survived a stroke have poor cardiovascular fitness with potentially disabling effects on daily life. The objective of this study was to evaluate the impact of intensive physical training on gait performance and cardiovascular health parameters in people with stroke in the chronic stage. This was a single-group pre-test-post-test experimental study. Fourteen people with hemiparesis after cerebrovascular injury participated in a 12-week training intervention, five times per week for 1.5 hours per session. Their mean age was 58 years, and they had a mean time since injury of 25 months. The intervention consisted of high-intensity, body-weight-supported treadmill training, progressive resistance strength training, and aerobic exercise. The main outcome measures were gait performance, 6-minute walk test, 10-meter walk test, and aerobic capacity, and parameters of cardiovascular health, systolic and diastolic blood pressures, body mass index, and resting heart rate. Significant improvements in all main outcome parameters were observed in response to the intervention. Gait speed during the 6-minute walk test increased 62%, and systolic and diastolic blood pressures decreased 10% and 11% respectively. Weekly testing of walking speed showed that most of the increase occurred in the first 8 weeks of training. Correlation analyses showed that improvements were unrelated to age, chronicity, or level of functioning. High-intensity physical training for people with stroke in the chronic stage increased walking speed regardless of chronicity, age, or level of functioning. Further studies should investigate the intervention duration needed to reach the full potential of gait recovery. A video clip accompanies this article online. Lead author Jürgen Jürgensen is a physiotherapist at the Center for Rehabilitation of Brain Injury at the University of Copenhagen in Copenhagen, Denmark. Next, muscle activation and perceived loading during rehabilitation exercises, comparison of dumbbells and elastic resistance by Dr. Lars Andersen, Christopher Andersen, Dr. Ola Mortensen, Dr. Otto Paulsen, Inge Bjornlund, and Dr. Meta Zebes. High-intensity resistance training plays an essential role in the prevention and rehabilitation of musculoskeletal injuries and disorders. Although resistance exercises with heavy weights yield high levels of muscle activation, the efficacy of more user-friendly forms of exercise needs to be examined. The aim of this study was to investigate muscle activation and perceived loading during upper extremity resistance exercises with dumbbells compared with elastic tubing. A single-group repeated measures study design was used and the exercise evaluation was conducted in a laboratory setting. The participants were 16 female workers between the ages of 26 and 55 who were without serious musculoskeletal diseases and had a mean neck and shoulder pain intensity of 7.8 on a 100-millimeter visual analog scale. Electromyographic activity was measured in five selected muscles during the exercises of lateral raise, wrist extension, and shoulder external rotation during graded loadings with dumbbells and elastic tubing. 
The order of exercises and loadings was randomized for each individual. Electromyographic amplitude was normalized to the absolute maximum electromyographic amplitude obtained during maximal voluntary isometric contraction and exercise testing. Immediately after each set of exercise, the Borg CR10 scale was used to rate perceived loading during the exercise. Resistance exercise with dumbbells, as well as elastic tubing, showed increasing electromyographic amplitude and perceived loading with increasing resistance. At the individually maximal level of resistance for each exercise, defined as the three repetitions maximum, normalized electromyographic activity of the prime muscles was not significantly different between dumbbells and elastic tubing. Perceived loading was moderately to very strongly related to normalized electromyographic activity. This study had the following limitation. The results of this study apply only for exercises performed in a controlled manner, that is, without sudden jerks or high acceleration. Comparably high levels of muscle activation were obtained during resistance exercises with dumbbells and elastic tubing, indicating that therapists can choose either type in clinical practice. The Borg CR10 can be a useful aid in estimating intensity of individual rehabilitation protocols. A bottom line for this article is available online. Lead author Dr. Lars Anderson is a researcher at the National Research Center for the Working Environment in Copenhagen, Denmark. Next, a simple clinical scale to stratify risk of recurrent falls in community-dwelling adults aged 65 years and older by Dr. Severine Boutois, Dr. Christine Perret-Guillaume, Dr. René Guéguen, Dr. Patrick Miget, Dr. Guy Vincent, Dr. Philippe Perrin, and Dr. Athanase Benitos. Correct identification of people at risk for recurrent falls facilitates the establishment of preventative and rehabilitative strategies in older adults. The purposes of this prospective measurement study were, one, to develop and validate a simple clinical scale to stratify risk for recurrent falls in community-dwelling elderly people based on easily obtained social and clinical items, and two, to evaluate the added value of three clinical balance tests in predicting this risk. A population of 1,618 community-dwelling people over 65 years of age underwent a health checkup, including performance of three clinical balance tests, the one-leg balance test, the timed up-and-go test, and the five-times sit-to-stand test. Falls were recorded using a self-administered questionnaire that was completed a mean of 25 months after the visit. Participants were randomly divided into one of two groups. Group A, which had a total of 999 participants, was used to develop the scale, or Group B, which had a total of 619 participants, was used to prospectively validate the scale. Logistic regression analysis identified four variables that independently predicted recurrent falls in Group A. History of falls, living alone, taking four or more medications per day, and female sex. Thereafter, three risk categories of recurrent falls, low, moderate, and high, were determined. Predicted probability of recurrent falls increased from 4.1% to 30.1% between the first and third categories. 
This scale subsequently was validated with great accuracy in Group B. Only the five-time sit-to-stand test provided added value in the estimation of risk for recurrent falls, especially for the participants who were at moderate risk in whom failure on the test, a duration of more than 15 seconds, doubled the risk. This study had the following limitations. Falls were assessed only once, and length of follow-up was heterogeneous, 18 to 36 months. Clinicians could easily classify older patients in low, moderate, or high-risk groups of recurrent falls by using four easy-to-obtain items. The five-times sit-to-stand test provides added value to stratify risk for falls in people at moderate risk. Lead author Dr. Severine Boutois is a project manager for the Centre d'études et des formations sur les vieillissements and Department of Geriatrics at the University Hospital of Nancy in Nancy, France. Kinematics of Rising from a Chair Image-Based Analysis of the Sagittal Hip-Spine Movement Pattern in Elderly People Who Are Healthy by Dr. Mohamed Futuhabadi, Dr. Elizabeth Tully, and Dr. Mary P. Galia. Rehabilitation of elderly patients with sit-to-stand dysfunction includes retraining coordinated movement among participating body segments. Although trunk position is considered important, spinal movement has not been measured. The aim of this observational study was to guide physical therapists in developing treatment strategies by describing the sagittal thoracolumbar kinematics and hip-lumbar interaction during the sit-to-stand task in elderly people who were healthy. Ten retro-reflective markers were attached to the midline thoracolumbar spine, pelvis, and right lower limb of 41 elderly people who were healthy. A two-dimensional video analysis system was used to measure sagittal, thoracic, lumbar, hip, and knee joint angles during the sit-to-stand task. Maximal available flexion extension angles in these joints and regions also were determined. Prior to buttocks liftoff, forward trunk lean comprised concurrent hip and lumbar flexion and thoracic extension. Hip flexion dominated with a hip-lumbar ratio of 4.7 to 1 and a thoracic-lumbar ratio of 1.7 to 1. The hip and lumbar spine contributed 90% and 23% of their maximal available flexion angle respectively, and the thoracic spine contributed 86% of its maximal extension range of movement. After liftoff, the hips and lumbar spine extended and the thoracic spine flexed. At liftoff, the hips and knees were similarly flexed at 96 degrees and then locked together in a linear pattern of extension. Following liftoff, there was a brief transition phase in which, although hips, knees, and lumbar spine were extending, the trunk continued to flex forward a few degrees. A limitation of the study is that the results may differ in elderly people who are less active. The revised model for image-based analysis demonstrated concurrent hip and thoracolumbar movement during the sit-to-stand task. Close to full available hip flexion and thoracic extension were needed for optimal sit-to-stand performance. Lead author Dr. Mohamed Futuhabadi is assistant professor and senior lecturer and head 
for the Education Development Office, Faculty of Rehabilitation Sciences at the Shiraz University of Medical Sciences in Shiraz, Fares, Iran. Next, Construct Validity of Muscle Force Tests of the Rotator Cuff Muscles, an Electromyographic Investigation, by Dr. Rebecca Brookham, Dr. Linda McLean, and Dr. Clark Dickerson. Manual muscle tests are used in clinical settings to evaluate the function and strength of a specific muscle in a position at which the muscle is believed to be most isolated from other synergists and antagonists. Despite frequent use of manual muscle tests, few electromyographic evaluations exist to confirm the ability of these tests to isolate the rotator cuff muscles. This study used an experimental design to examine rotator cuff isolation during 29 shoulder muscle force tests, 9 clinical tests, and 20 generic tests. Electromyographic data were recorded from 4 rotator cuff muscles and 10 additional shoulder muscles of 12 male participants. Maximal isolation ratios, that is, mean specific rotator cuff muscle activation to mean activation of the other 13 recorded muscles, defined which of these tests most isolated the rotator cuff muscles. Three rotator cuff muscles were maximally isolated within their respective clinical test groups. The subscapularis muscle was maximally isolated equally as effectively within the generic ulnar force and clinical medial rotation groups. Similarly, the supraspinatus and teres minor muscles were isolated equally as effectively in some generic test groups as they were in their respective clinical test groups. Some limitations of the study were that postural artifact in the wire electrodes caused exclusion of some channels from calculations. The grouping of muscle force tests based on test criteria, clinical or generic tests, and muscle action may have influenced which groups most isolated the muscle of interest. The results confirmed the appropriateness of nine commonly used clinical tests for isolating rotator cuff muscles, but suggested that several other muscle force tests were equally appropriate for isolating these muscles. Two e-appendixes for this article are available online. Lead author Rebecca Brookham is a doctoral student in the Department of Kinesiology at the University of Waterloo in Waterloo, Ontario, Canada. Next, motor and sensory nerve conduction are affected differently by ice pack, ice massage, and cold water immersion. By Esperanza Herrera, Dr. Maria Sandoval, Diana Carmargo, and Dr. Tania Salvini, it is well known that reducing tissue temperature changes sensory and motor nerve conduction. However, few studies have compared the effect of different cold modalities on nerve conduction parameters. The purpose of the study was to compare the effects of ice packs, ice massages, and cold water immersion on the conduction parameters of the sural and tibial motor nerves. An experimental study was conducted in which the participants were randomly assigned to one of three intervention groups with 12 people per group. Independent variables were cold modality and pre- and post-cooling measurement time. Dependent variables were skin temperature and nerve conduction parameters. 36 people who were healthy, with a mean age of 20.5 years, participated in the study. Each group received one of the three cold modalities applied to the right calf region for 15 minutes. 
Skin temperature and nerve conduction parameters were measured before and immediately after cooling. All three modalities reduced skin temperature. The mean reduction in skin temperature was 18 degrees Celsius. There also was a reduction in amplitude and an increase in latency and duration of the compound action potential. Ice massages, ice packs, and cold water immersion reduced sensory nerve conduction velocity by 20.4, 16.7, and 22.6 meters per second, and motor nerve conduction velocity by 2.5, 2.1, and 8.3 meters per second, respectively. Cold water immersion was the most effective modality in changing nerve conduction parameters. Limitations of the study included the cooling area of the ice massages and ice packs was smaller than that of the cold water immersion. The examiner was not blinded to the treatment group, and the population included only participants who were healthy and young. All three modalities were effective in reducing skin temperature and changing sensory conduction at a physiological level that is sufficient to induce a hypoalgesic effect. The results suggest that cold water immersion, as applied in this study, is the most indicated modality for inducing therapeutic effects associated with the reduction of motor nerve conduction. Lead author Esperanza Herrera is a PhD student in the program of Physiological Sciences at the Federal University of Sao Carlos in Sao Carlos, Brazil, and is titular professor in the Department of Physical Therapy at the Universidad Industrial de Santander in Bucaramanga, Santander, Colombia. This month's case report is Development of a Therapeutic Exercise Program for Patients with Osteoarthritis of the Hip by Linda Fernandez, Dr. Kirsty Storheim, Dr. Lars Norsleden, and Dr. May Risberg. No detailed exercise programs specifically for patients with hip osteoarthritis have been described in the literature. This lack of data creates a gap between the recommendation that people with osteoarthritis should exercise and the type and dose of exercises that they should perform. The purpose of this case report is to describe and demonstrate the use of a therapeutic exercise program for a patient with hip osteoarthritis. A 58-year-old woman with hip osteoarthritis completed a 12-week therapeutic exercise program with a six-month follow-up. The patient reported hip pain, joint stiffness, and limited physical function, and she had decreased hip range of motion at baseline. The patient performed 19 sessions during the therapeutic exercise program with a mean of 19.5 exercises per session. She increased the resistance in three of five strength training exercises and achieved the highest degree of difficulty in all functional exercises. During the therapeutic exercise program and follow-up, the patient reported improvements in pain, joint stiffness, and physical function. Performance improved on the following physical tests. Isokinetic peak torque strength in hip extension, hip flexion, knee extension, and knee flexion, hip range of motion extension, and 6-minute walk distance. The patient experienced less pain and improved physical function and physical test outcomes after intervention and at the 6-month follow-up. 
The main challenges when prescribing an exercise program for a patient with hip osteoarthritis are monitoring the exercises to provide improvements without provoking persistent pain and motivating the patient to achieve long-term adherence to exercising. Randomized clinical trials are needed to evaluate the efficacy of this therapeutic exercise program in patients with hip osteoarthritis. An e-appendix for this article is available online. Lead author Linda Fernandez is a Ph.D. student at the Norwegian Research Center for Active Rehabilitation in the Orthopedic Center at Oslo University Hospital in Oslo, Norway. This month's perspective article is Conceptual Model for Physical Therapist Management of Chronic Fatigue Syndrome Myalgic Encephalomyelitis by Dr. Todd Davenport, Stacey Stevens, Dr. Mark Van Ness, Dr. Christopher Snell, and Dr. Tamara Little. Fatigue is one of the most common reasons why people consult healthcare providers. Chronic fatigue syndrome, myalgic encephalomyelitis, is one cause of clinically debilitating fatigue. The underdiagnosis of this syndrome, along with the spectrum of symptoms that represent multiple reasons for entry into physical therapy settings, places physical therapists in a unique position to identify this health condition and direct its appropriate management. The diagnosis and clinical correlates of chronic fatigue syndrome, myalgic encephalomyelitis, are becoming better understood, although the optimal clinical management of this condition remains controversial. The four aims of this perspective article are, one, to summarize the diagnosis of chronic fatigue syndrome, myalgic encephalomyelitis, with the goal of promoting the optimal recognition of this condition by physical therapists, two, to discuss aerobic system and cognitive deficits that may lead to the clinical presentation of this condition. Three, to review the evidence for graded exercise with the goal of addressing limitations in body structures and functions, activity, and participation in people with this condition. And four, to present a conceptual model for the clinical management of chronic fatigue syndrome, myalgic encephalomyelitis, by physical therapists. Lead author Dr. Todd Davenport is assistant professor in the Department of Physical Therapy at the Thomas J. Long School of Pharmacy and Health Sciences at the University of the Pacific in Stockton, California. Our first article from the CARE 5 conference series is Qualitative Research Ethics, Enhancing Evidence-Based Practice in Physical Therapy by Dr. Anne Townsend, Dr. Susan Cox, and Dr. Linda Lee. Increasing challenges to healthcare systems and the prominence of patient-centered care and evidence-based practice have fostered the application of qualitative approaches in healthcare settings, prompting discussions of associated ethical issues in a range of disciplines. The purposes of this work were to identify and describe the application and value of qualitative health research for physical therapy, and to identify ethical considerations in a qualitative research study. This was a qualitative interview study with telephone follow-ups. Forty-six participants were interviewed about their early experiences with rheumatoid arthritis. They also were asked what motivated them to volunteer for the study. To inform the discussion of ethics in qualitative health research, this study drew on the in-depth interviews, took a descriptive approach to the data, and applied the traditional ethical principles of autonomy, justice, and beneficence to the study process. 
ethical issues emerged in this qualitative health research study that were both similar to and different from those that exist in a positivist paradigm, for example, clinical research. With flexibility and latitude, the traditional principal approach can be applied usefully to qualitative health research. These findings build on previous research and discussion in physical therapy and other disciplines that urge a flexible approach to qualitative research ethics and recognize that ethics are embedded in an unfolding research process involving the role of the subjective researcher and an active participant. We suggest reflexivity as a way to recognize ethical moments throughout qualitative research and to help build methodological and ethical rigor in research relevant to physical therapist practice. This article will be the subject of a discussion podcast. Lead author Dr. Ann Townsend is a research associate at the W. Morris Young Center for Applied Ethics at the University of British Columbia and affiliate researcher for the Arthritis Research Center of Canada, both in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. Finally, continuing professional development is associated with increasing physical therapists' roles in arthritis management in Canada and the Netherlands by Dr. Linda Lee, Emily Herkmans, Dr. Eric Serre, and Dr. Thea Fliet Flielen. This study explored the relationships among the roles assumed by physical therapists in arthritis care and their previous participation in arthritis courses for continuing professional development. A cross-sectional male survey was conducted. A total of 600 Canadian physical therapists and 461 Dutch physical therapists practicing in orthopedics were randomly selected to participate in a male survey. The questionnaire covered areas related to their clinical practice, previous participation in arthritis-related continuing professional development courses, and roles in the management of osteoarthritis and rheumatoid arthritis. Poisson regression was used to explore the associations between physical therapists' participation in arthritis-related continuing professional development courses and the number of roles they assumed in osteoarthritis care and rheumatoid arthritis care after adjusting for personal characteristics, arthritis caseload, and country of practice. The survey response rates were 47.7% in Canada and 50.5% in the Netherlands. A total of 424 participants had treated patients with osteoarthritis in the previous month, and 259 participants had treated patients with rheumatoid arthritis in the previous month. The most common roles reported by participants were providing traditional physical therapy interventions and providing post-surgical care. Arthritis-related continuing professional development courses significantly increased, that is, multiplied, the expected number of roles assumed by physical therapists by a factor of 1.32 in osteoarthritis management and 1.69 in rheumatoid arthritis management. A limitation of the study is that the physical therapists' roles in arthritis management were obtained through self-reporting, which might differ from their actual clinical practice. This exploratory analysis highlights the association between participation in arthritis-related continuing professional development courses and the roles assumed by physical therapists in osteoarthritis and rheumatoid arthritis management. Further research is needed to understand the effects of continuing professional development activities on other areas of physical therapist practice and on patients' outcomes. Lead author Dr. Linda Lee is 
Assistant Professor and Harold Robinson Arthritis Society Chair in Arthritic Diseases in the Department of Physical Therapy at the University of British Columbia and Research Scientist for the Arthritis Research Center of Canada, both in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of Science Audio, online at www.scienceaudio.net. We always appreciate your feedback. You can email ptj at scienceaudio.net or leave a voicemail at 626-593-7825.